In 1 Samuel 11, we have Saul's trial and triumph as king and the renewal of the kingdom at Gilgal. Hear now the word of Almighty God, inspired by his spirit, profitable for us, the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel 11, starting at verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel, and then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul, and told the tidings in the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto thee, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered, so that two of them were not left together. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel to the people, Come, and let us go to Gilgal, and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word from 1 Samuel chapter 11. A few comments on this very important passage 
in the history of God's people. Verses 1 through 3, we have the distress of Jabesh-Gilead on the other side of Jordan by the Ammonites. Remember, the Ammonites are also on the east side of Jordan. They've come up to vex and distress these people. The men of Jabesh-Gilead say, Make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. They lay as a defenseless city, no one to help them, no one that they could enter into a covenant with to save them, so they thought. And so they say, we will enter into an alliance with you. We will be your slaves. We will be your servants. And notice the cruelty of the Ammonites of Nahash and his men. On this condition, verse 2, will I make a covenant with you? Now the word make a covenant means to cut a covenant. In fact, the word covenant means a cutting in Hebrew. Let us cut a cutting. Let us make a covenant. Let us covenant a covenant, in other words. And then he says, here are my conditions that I may thrust out all your right eyes. Now imagine yourself a right-handed man with a shield in one hand and a sword in the other. What happens if your right eye is poked out or literally dug out as it says here? Could you fight in any kind of warfare? No, you'd be completely incapacitated. Imagine your good shooting eye poking it out. What could you do to shoot? You'd miss the target every time. So he wants them to become perpetual slaves, thrusting out their right eyes. And he says, I will lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. Now, as we'll see in the book of Revelation, Nahash is much like the devil. The devil says, serve me. And what are the terms of his service? Let me pluck out your eye. Let me make you defenseless and destroy and lay waste to you as you serve me. Here it is. Just like the devil, just like his lying father, the devil. Nahash wants to lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. He wants to shame them. He wants to subjugate these men. And all the Western tribes are so busy with the Philistines. Will they be able to come? No. So it'll be a reproach to your whole nation that nobody can come and help you against us. The men of Jabesh-Gilead in verse 3 ask, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel. Now ordinarily, if you were in Nahash's position, would you accept these terms? Oh sure, I'll give you seven days to get some help. Yeah. But what does Nahash assume? Well, I've got this one in the bag. This is going to be easy, easy. Sure, take your seven days. I'll still destroy you at the end of it. Pride, in other words, folly and pride are wrapped up in the vain heart of the Ammonites. And notice, pride goes before what? A fall and a haughty look before destruction. So here, he puts off the armor. He thinks he's fine. And what comes next? His doom. Let us beware of the sin and folly of pride. It makes us liable to all manner of destruction. If there be no man to save us, they say, we will come out to thee. Here is the tentative acceptance. If this condition is fulfilled, nobody comes, then we will have our eyes gouged out and you can do with us whatever you please. Now this word deliver or save is as when the betrothed damsel is forced and someone comes and snatches her out of the rapist's hands. It's the same word. It means to rescue from an enemy or an adversary. Who, pray tell, will rescue the men of Jabesh Gilead? That brings us to verses 4 through 10. 
Saul hears of their distress, is moved by God's spirit to assume kingly leadership. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul. Now, note it, Gibeah of Saul, no longer Gibeah of Benjamin. There is a special name given to it. He is now their king, and so it's identified with him as their king. We'll see again the words Gibeah of Benjamin as the words, I trust, Gibeah of Saul. It is prominent now because of Saul himself. Now, if you recall from Judges chapter 21, there was a war waged against the Benjamites. And there were certain people who did not come up to Mizpah and were cursed and their city was destroyed and their daughters were saved so that they could marry the Benjamites. Do you remember the name of that city? Jabesh Gilead. Here it is. This is why they send to the men of Benjamin, we gave you our daughters, now send us your sons. Send us their sons or their grandsons. Come and save us, please. And when this happens, because there is a close relation between the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead and the men of Benjamin, they weep. They lift up their voice and they weep. It seemed like nothing could go right. All was sinking into disorder and chaos and defeat. Verse 4, Saul comes in verse 5 after the herd out of the field. Again, Saul is commended in this. He's shepherding his father's flock. He is destined to great things, but he's not above ordinary labors with the sweat of his brow. Tidings are told to Saul. And then notice verse 6, it tells us that the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those things. Now notice, the Spirit of God comes upon him to what purpose? What does the Spirit of God move a king to do? To contemplate and to go off into a monastery and be still and silent. Is that what it made him do? No. The Geneva Bible notes, God gave him the spirit of strength and courage to go against this tyrant. That's what Nahash was. He's a tyrant. His terms are diabolical and wicked. His authority is non-existent. Now notice, also as we saw in prior chapters, God's spirit came upon Saul just as God changed Saul's heart, as God made him into another man. Andrew Willett comments, Man hath not any free will of himself in moral actions to do that which is good and pleasing in the sight of God unless he be thereunto drawn and guided by the Spirit of God, contrary, note it, to the erroneous doctrine of the Romanists. Saul could not be compelled to do good as a king unless what happened? God put his spirit upon him. Do you think there's somehow some magic free will to come to Jesus Christ that we can somehow do some good thing and seek after God in the strength of our own fallen nature? Of course not. God has to pour his spirit out upon us. And who believes the contrary, according to Andrew Willett? The Romanists do. It is a Romanizing doctrine, the dogma of free will, because Rome is a sink of all the errors of the early church. 
including the Pelagian error. It sunk down into Rome so that they became the purveyors of it. Oh, yes, they bow before Augustine and say he's a doctor of the church and a saint to be adored. And then they won't listen to what he says because he teaches against their doctrine. But notice the spirit of God came upon Saul to what purpose? And his anger was kindled greatly. His nostrils flared up, it means literally. His anger came upon him because of the Spirit of God. A holy and just anger, his wrath was inflamed. Why? Because of tyranny. Because of the taking advantage of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. This is contrary to the Stoic doctrine that virtue must only move the mind and not the affections. That's not what the Bible teaches. Does the Bible teach that our affections should be subordinated to our minds? Yes. Does it teach that our affections should be obliterated by our mind? No. Anger is the movement of the affections toward justice. William Perkins Notes, just and lawful anger must be kindled and stirred up by good and holy affections, as namely, by desire to maintain the honor and praise of God, by the love of justice and virtue, by hatred and detestation of vice and of all that is evil. You see, do you know why they want us to be quiet, calm, serene? Do you know why they want to paint pictures of Jesus as if he were effeminate and womanlike? Because they want his disciples to shut up and go away and don't cause any trouble. They don't want us to have the Spirit of God. Well, as long as it's when you give life and when you embrace but isn't there a time to every purpose under heaven? Isn't there a time to kill? Isn't there a time to refrain from embracing? Isn't there a time to tear down as well as to build up? Didn't Jesus make a whip of cords and drive out the money changers and turn over their tables? Yes, and he was angry. So there is a time, there is a place, there is a purpose. And let us pray that God gives us both the truth in our minds uprightness in our wills and zeal for his glory, love for his people and great anger as necessary. What does he do in his anger? He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the land of Israel and said, if you don't do what I'm telling you as your king, this will happen to your yoke. Now, Where's your food if you don't have the yoke of oxen? Dries up, doesn't it? This is virtually a death sentence. You'll be beggars, you'll be vagabonds, you'll be debtors, or you'll die if you don't do what I say. This is a very severe threat. And the fear of the Lord, verse 7 tells us, fell on the people and they came out with one consent. Magistrates wield God's sword. When lawful punishment is threatened, here's the proper response. Fear God and consent to it. That's what you should do. Tremble before God and tremble before his deputy, his lieutenant, the magistrate. When the magistrate yields the sword in unrighteousness for wicked purposes, fear God, don't fear the magistrate. 300,000 men 
from Israel come out, verse 8 tells us, and 30,000 of Judah. This is a very goodly army. And you see the beginning of the cracks and fissures in the commonwealth of Israel. You notice how it names them separately, Israel and Judah. See, they're already beginning to grow apart, so to speak. Saul tells them, tomorrow, by the time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. Now we're going to see in chapter 12, verse 17, God willing, this evening, that this is during the time of wheat harvest. This is about May or June time frame. And the heat of the day is when you see the grass first thing in the morning in May, you see dew on the grass, don't you? And then by about 10 o'clock, what do you see on the grass? Nothing. It's the heat of the day. In fact, farmers won't or they shouldn't be watering their plants after 10 o'clock. Why? Because what will happen is the water will stay on the leaf and the sun will bake it in the heat of the day and destroy the leaves. But in any case, the heat of the day, somewhere between 10 a.m. and 12 p.m., help or salvation will be there, he says. So the men of Jabesh-Gilead say in verse 10, perhaps snickering all the way, tomorrow we will come out unto you. Yes, they're going to come out to them and destroy them. Verses 11 through 15, Saul's glorious victory, the renewal of his kingdom and his magnanimity. Verse 11, they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Now the first watch or the morning watch is when it goes from being dark to slightly light. So it's before people are up and moving about. They come out with an impulsion by God's power, moved by his spirit, in a forced march of 50 or 60 miles from Gibeah with 330,000 men from about the dawn of the day till 10 or 11 in the morning and they slaughter them all. This is obviously a movement of God. It's a signal victory. It's obviously God's hand bringing the victory to these men. Now notice, the remnants of the armies of the Ammonites are scattered. Not two of them were left together. A total rout. They are discomfited. Saul's prowess as king and leader is established and confirmed. No doubts. So the people said unto Samuel in their zeal now for Saul, they say this, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Not only had Saul defeated the Ammonites, he had defeated the opposition inside of the nation of Israel, those who opposed his kingship, those who opposed his kingdom. They have been put down as well. All the men rise up with one consent to say, this man is now our king. And those who said otherwise, they're accusing of high treason. Now let us evaluate for a moment. This is a new circumstance with the election of a king. He's not quite elected. You'll notice they have to renew the kingdom. There's some doubt about the legitimacy of his kingdom. So is that a matter of capital punishment if someone said, he's not my president, is that a capital offense? Perhaps, perhaps not. There's some doubt in this, in other words. But the zeal of the people overtakes them so that they call for the death penalty. Bring them in that we may put them to death. You have despised a government lawfully instituted both by God and by men. And again, 
Are they right? Perhaps. Are they wrong? Perhaps. I'm not sure. But notice Saul's exercise of what we call clemency. Verse 13, there shall not a man be put to death this day. Now clemency is a virtue by which a man shows compassion for his fellow men. He has a readiness in his heart to forgive others. If you ever heard the name Clementine or Clement, same idea. It means someone who is willing to forgive, to overlook wrongs done to them, who is moved with compassion on those who sin against him. Has Saul been wronged? Yes. Is he willing to forgive and overlook? Yes, he is. Now, this is quite a contrast with Saul part two, which we'll look at as we go on. But here is Saul part one. Here is the better part of Saul, a man of great spirit, of clemency. And notice a man even, it would seem, of piety. For today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. This is a pious, God-fearing edict. God has shown mercy to us. We must in turn show mercy. And this is the basis for clemency. God has forgiven my sins. I should forgive my neighbor. We'll look at this in Matthew 18, God willing, in our 430 service. Forgive us our debts. How? As we forgive our debtors. We'll see the king forgiving a massive debt in his slave. And then the slave goes out and his fellow servant owes him about, let's say, 100 days wages. And he takes him by the neck and says, pay me what you owe me. And then he throws his fellow servant in jail because he can't pay him. And then the king hears of it and he's wroth with this slave. Why? I forgave you all this massive debt and you go around nickel and diming your fellow slaves. Saul is not such a man at this point in his life. He was ready to forgive. Yet alas, where will these virtues be when the son of Jesse comes along? When he is anointed to become the next king of Israel, what will happen to Saul's crown? Will he say, here Lord, take this from me? No, this is my crown. Kill the boy. Why? Because he's your best servant. And the girls sing about all the people he kills on your behalf and you get upset. And then you become no longer magnanimous, shriveled and small-souled rather than great and large soul. Let us end well. Let us use the means that God has put at our disposal to persevere. God has given us means to persevere to the end. We believe not merely in the preservation of the saints, we believe in the perseverance of the saints, that they continue in good works, in faith and holiness, not merely that God keeps them, which is true by his power, but we believe that they will use the means to that end that God has designed for them. The word, sacraments, and prayer. Let us renew our commitment to be a holy people to the Lord in this day, throughout this coming year, and even to the end of our lives, Saul will lose his grip on the means of grace and the means of perseverance, and he will end badly. Verse 14, notice the wisdom of Samuel. Then said Samuel to the people, listen, they want to kill people, Saul has said no because of this 
pious sense that God has done them much good. Samuel interposes. He says, I see the zeal. I see the clemency. Let's redirect this toward a good purpose. Let's take this zeal for Saul and renew the kingdom. Let's do a second vote, in other words. Let's have another election to see if you will consent. Let us go to Gilgal. Samuel's very wise, and we as superiors would do well to imitate his wisdom, directing the zeal, especially of our inferiors, to use their energies, though perhaps misdirected, in things that are good rather than in things that are evil. Gilgal, do you remember this place? Pastor Black talked about it just recently. This is where they were circumcised the second time. The whole generation that came up out of Egypt died off. Their children were not circumcised. They all needed to be circumcised and to roll away the reproach of Egypt. As they came to inherit the land, God required that they be holy, that they receive the sign of his covenant. This is Gilgal. Covenant initiation. The recircumcision of their nation a total devotion of that land and its people to God himself, renew the covenant there. A great choice, I might add, on Samuel's part. Now, one doctrine from this is that the consent of the governed is not an enlightenment doctrine. Oh, Hobbes came up with this. It came out of the enlightenment that the governed governed should elect their governors. Is that true? Who is it that made Saul king? Did you notice? Who is it that caused him to have lawful civil government? Look at verse 15. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king. What about God? Didn't God anoint him to be king? Yes. But who actually caused him to enter into his office? The people. They are known here as all the people. All the people went to Gilgal and they made him king. Rutherford wrote his Lex Rex while Hobbes was still in grade school in London. Beza wrote his Rite of the Magistrates while Rutherford was a little boy. Civil power is both the ordinance of God as well as the ordinance of man. And without the two, you don't have legitimate civil government. You can be elected by the people and be a tyrant and not be the ordinance of God. You can rule according to the statutes of God and claim to be his ordinance, but if people don't elect you, you are not the ordinance of God or of man. The two must meet together. So the people go. To Gilgal, they make Saul king before the Lord. The people are the kingmakers. The governors are elected by the governed. And this is an inflexible law both of nature as well as scripture. Now, do you know what a bureaucrat is? It's someone who tells you what to do, but has never been elected. Let's ask a question. Are they the ordinance of God? No, they're not. Why? Who elected them? Who said... I would like you to rule over me and tell me what to do. Who said that? What about the police? Ouch. Back the blue, right? Who elected the police? Did I? Did you? 
Did anyone? No, they got hired in a job. Now think back to the Middle Ages. Who elected the prelates? Who elected the pope? Who elected the friars? Who did that? Nobody. So what authority did they have? This much. That's about how much they had. Big zero. God is opposed both in church and state to monkery, to bureaucrats, to police, to all species of unnatural forms of government where those who are governed have no say in who their governors are. God opposes this. Back the blue. Trust the Pope. All the apish offices of the Episcopal, the Eastern Orthodox, the Romans, where did they get their authority for their officers? I don't know. The church? The fathers? Who knows? But here, notice, God recognizes that the people elect their rulers. The governed elect their governors. There Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. God had been merciful to them. Concord had come out of chaos. There was a mutual meeting of the ordinance of God with the ordinance of men, and now they have a lawful king, which in chapter 12 we'll see the renewal and the farewell sermon of Samuel to that effect. 